on today's episode. I have not been able to detect any evidence whatsoever that China has the goal of exporting their governance system globally. They don't say they're going to do that. They respect other people's differences with respect to governance. They don't like other people's, you know, disrespect for their form of governance. It's a way of seeing the world and it's really different. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott Gould. On today's podcast, I have with me three guests who have extensive experience in China. We're going to talk about how US-China geopolitical tensions have the potential to dramatically shape economic growth and investment opportunities in China and indeed the rest of the world. Our guests will provide insights on how investors can navigate these challenges. So first, we have Malcolm Riddle, the founder of Real Debate, also China Debate, which is a platform for China analysis, commentary, interviews with top China experts. Malcolm has been an investment banker, a diplomat, a lawyer, an academic and a spy. That's pretty cool. Also with me is Dr. Michael Spence, the Philip H. Knight Professor Emeritus of Management at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. He's also the Senior Fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford and a Distinguished Visiting Fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations. Also, he has a Nobel Prize. That's pretty cool, too. Lastly is Vivian Lynn Thurston. Vivian is a portfolio manager here at William Blair. She is co-manager on two China portfolios and a co-manager on our emerging market growth portfolio. So welcome to all three of you. Delighted you're here. Let's get going. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. In fact, I know we have a lot to talk about. So we're going to mostly focus on China and its external relationship, hence Cold War. We'll do a little bit on China domestically if we have time at the end. But Malcolm, I thought I would start with you, which is Let's talk about China and its relationship with the rest of the world. As we stand today, what do you think China's geopolitical goals are in the near term and the longer term? How does China see itself in the global power structure? What does it view its rightful and natural places? So, Malcolm, you have you can have first bite on that. Thank you. I'll rebrief on a very long and complex subject. We need just a bit of history to really answer the question. That is, for a couple thousand years, China, in its domain in Asia, considered itself to be the Middle Kingdom. That is, the Zhongguo, the, we'll call it the center of the universe, the center of, of power, the center of culture. And uh, starting in the 1840s, uh, China missed the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Britain didn't, and neither did the other countries. And over a period of time, they imposed on what China calls the century of humiliation, which ended up with China being sort of divided up among the powers, Western powers in Japan, into a semi-colonial status. And uh, that includes also invasion by uh, Japan in World War II. It's just a bad century for China. So what China sees today is that what is happening with China's rise, what we call its rise, it's not rise at all. It's just retaking its rightful place uh, in the geopolitical system. And whether it, it views itself as just in the region as being the one that needs to be the hegemon or in the world remains to be seen. But if I had to put just a few of the goals there, I would say the first thing is to return to that predominance that enjoyed in Asia. We know that as the Middle Kingdom before the West intruded. 
The second thing is it wants to reestablish control over the territories that the Communist Party considers to be greater China. And that's not just Xinjiang and Tibet, which are in the news a lot today, but Hong Kong, which we've seen. And most importantly, the one that's left is Taiwan. And this, of course, is the source of, of really greatest tension between the U.S. and China, and also uh, what the economist calls the most dangerous place on Earth because of the potential for it to spark a conflict with China. I would say also the third thing is to, as I mentioned, that China, the relations it had with its uh, neighbors was what we called a tribute relationship. And that is that uh, the neighbors would send emissaries to uh, give tribute to the emperor and acknowledge the emperor as the, uh, the great uh, leader of the area. In exchange, they would have the right to trade. In fact, it looks very much like what we see today. So we see China trying to recover that sphere of influence that it had before in, if through activities in the South China Sea, the Belt and Road Initiative and these things. I'd say the, the fourth thing would be to command the respect of great powers in the Council of the World. Xi Jinping and China really feel dissed. I mean, they think they've just done great things and they're just not getting any respect. And I'd say that this is causing some a lot of the tension that we see. Longer term, I would say the idea is to push the U.S. out at least out of the Western Pacific and also to uh, take a much greater role in shaping the world order as it stands today to serve China or to create an alternative world order that fits China's ambitions. And I'll leave it with that. Thanks, Malcolm. So, Mike, I'll, I'll throw it to you, which is everything Malcolm's just described, can that be done in a peaceful and smooth way? Has it ever been done in a peaceful and smooth way? Relatively rarely. <laughs> Does a rising power do this without tension? So I think we're experiencing that now. Uh, let me just add to what Malcolm says. I think everything he said is is right on target. And these things are related to each other. But on the economic front, they want to become a high-income country, highly prosperous, living well, and so on. And their performance over the last 40 years is about as spectacular as you can get in pursuing that kind of objective. And the only other thing I would say, Hugh, um, and I'm not sure Malcolm and Vivian would agree with this, but China under the current president has be, certainly been more aggressive externally than the, the previous period when they were really focused on domestically on growth and development and not much more. And uh, Deng Xiaoping had a, had, you know, had a view of that, which is, the, you know, you know, whatever your long-term goals, you sort of take advantage of the global economy and the advanced countries to achieve those goals. So this is, this is a big change. But if the title of this thing is Cold War, let me just say, so far we have, at least I have not been able to detect any evidence whatsoever that China has the goal of exporting their governance system globally. I, I just don't, they don't say they're going to do that. They respect other people's differences with respect to governance. They don't like other people's, you know, disrespect for their form of governance. It's a way of seeing the world, and it's really different from the post-war period in which we had a kind of international sort of communist movement. So Vivian, in your opinion, how does misunderstandings between different political systems, different economic systems get resolved? Because misunderstanding caused a number of issues in the previous cold, previous major cold war between U.S. and the USSR, or the West and the USSR. So, how how do you think, with your almost unique perspective, having grown up in China, 
How do you think those kind of misunderstandings can, can be resolved to avoid costly misunderstandings? Thank you, Hugo. And I definitely think this is a great point about economic development, I think, will be the kind of a, a saving force, if any. Uh, if I think about China now versus, say, 100, 150 years ago, as Malcolm mentioned earlier, the whole history recount, the difference is China is no longer a small country from an economic perspective, and especially people's desire to get better, better quality of living. That's You cannot bring back that. So because the I think geopolitical desire of a country has to be also in the context of their domestic side of the agenda. And China has 1.4 billion people. Now they just crossed the 10,000 US dollars per capita GDP, which is a remarkable uh, kind of uh, achievement. So I think from the Chinese government perspective, the key is how to continue to make this country, this 1.4 billion people continue to be satisfied with that prosperity, the growth, that kind of uh, stability and peace. So I think the geopolitical side of consideration and even global economic side of consideration will have to fit with this type of uh, priority to, to a large extent. So I want to add a little bit about the geopolitical side of consideration. I do think, I, I agree with both Mike and Malcolm, because of history as it is, that Chinese government's goal, a whole Chinese people's goal is to reestablish that respect they feel they deserve from the rest of the world, or probably the understanding uh, Hugo, to your point, there's a lot of misunderstanding. And the secondly, I think they want to make sure they protect the sovereignty of this country. So there's still a lot of remaining legacy issues, such as Taiwan, and then resurgence of the Tibet or Hong Kong or the Xinjiang uh, issue. So they feel they need to first protect the sovereignty of it. And that they really put it as a core of the geopolitical kind of a development with the rest of the world. So I just want to add that uh, perspective, like they want to first protect that which is a big deal because they have 100 years of that very difficult time as a country got invaded all the time. So I think that is a big uh, focus on that geopolitical front. So Mike, I want to, as an economist, your view on really how the relationship between the US and China evolves economically. Can it just be a little bit of friction here and there, but overall you've got two economic superpowers, two most important economies in the world that can kind of rub along? Or does it actually deteriorate? And will more and more countries around the world have to sort of choose which economic system they're going to be in? How does this kind of play out? Because this is different from US versus USSR, right? These are two yeah. huge economies that are the dominant economies in the world. So kind of help us think about that, not just kind of next year, but five years, 10 years out. Yeah, so there's lots of different views on this, Hugh, and all of us will want to comment on it. It was easier to operate in a relatively and increasingly open global environment when China was not a powerhouse economically and not a powerhouse technologically. One of the things that makes it very complicated now, other than sort of generalized tensions, and I want to come back to that question in a minute, they are now um, technological competitors. And we know that technology and science and things like that kind of flow around the world, and they have national security implications. I mean, this we are living in a world of dual-use technologies, many of which were developed on the commercial side, the science and commercial side, like artificial intelligence. And so the national security agenda is fairly dramatically on the American side, but really on both sides, interfering with the challenge of building a kind of as cooperative a, uh, a relationship as possible, and one that's 
I think both sides that share somewhere down the line a desire to make this structure that's going to have to be different from the post-war one as inclusive as possible. Nobody wants to produce a structure in which the lower income countries, you know, just don't have any access and no way to grow. I just don't think that's where China wants to go yeah. and it's not where the Western <clears throat> countries want to go either. But it's going to be a lot more complicated. And the last thing I wanted to say is both sides really have to decide on one of two models. One of the models is we'll cooperate where we can and where it's really important for both sides, but also for the whole world, like climate change, like health. And, you know, there's a long list of things where there's no downside and lots of upside, but then agree to differ or even have different value systems and not even like the other system in other respects. That's model one. Model two is you link them all together, right? If you don't like their human rights performance, then we're not going to cooperate on, on uh, economic performance. And the only way we're going to be able to make progress is if, if both sides in, in one form or another, I mean, there's shades of gray in this, but in one form or another, uh, adopt the first model. Because there are genuine differences across countries and cultures, including these, these two or the West versus China, in different values, social stability versus freedom of a variety of kinds, etc. Those aren't going to go away, right? So we're going to have differences. And if we decide to pick a fight every time we find a difference that's meaningful to us in terms of our own value system, it's going to make it doubly difficult to make progress in cooperating where there's a huge potential mutual benefit. Malcolm, would you agree with that? Do you see that there's just filter out some of the noise there is actually underlying that that sort of common shared goal, shared intent to agree to disagree on certain things, but on really big things, actually agree and coordinate. And, and perhaps maybe that sort of that optimistic view from Mike there was tested during the, the ongoing COVID pandemic. And do you think that was a test that cooperation succeeded or failed in? So do you think there is that, that agenda to, to actually on bigger picture things to actually work together? I think we're going to get there. What's happening now, though, is that there, especially beginning with President Trump's administration, the tension rose greatly, and our essentially our attacks on China, even to the even to calling for regime change to a certain extent, has made things very tough. At the same time, China has become prickly and just not wanting to get what they call any interference in its internal affairs. So I think we can get to where Mike's going, but right now we've got a problem. For example, let's take climate change, and I'll get to COVID in a second. But if we get to climate change, President Biden came in with the idea that he would you know, put this in a separate silo, and it's, it's a common interest to the, uh, every power, every country, every person on the planet, and they'd work together on this. China, for whatever reason at this point, its initial negotiating position is, yes, we'll work with you on climate change if you meet certain requirements about, you know, not that we want that are political requirements. And so we're not quite there. We're not at this area where we where we can actually work together in a smooth way on issues of common interest. I think we'll get there. As far as COVID, I think we saw that that just, we just, the I think the previous administration, U.S. administration made it very difficult for China to uh, cooperate with us. 
whether they would or they wouldn't, we really don't have a test. I don't consider that to be an adequate test because of the, the rhetoric that, and, that came out from that. If I look, though, at, a, at what we're talking about, how we're going to deal with this, uh, you're talking about the economic tensions. You know, it's interesting, Xi Jinping sort of is, re I'm going to get into this in a greater detail in some other questions, but has revamped the economy to make it more self-sufficient. He's uh, introduced, for example, the dual circulation strategy, which we won't go into in great detail here, but this is an economic strategy that is meant to enhance, to a great extent, the internal economy, make it less dependent on the outside world, because he sees the outside world as a pretty dangerous place. And I think he's got good evidence that there, at least in the past, have been forces in the U.S. that were inimical to China's economic growth. Uh, in technology, as Mike mentioned, there's not much question that, beginning with former President Trump, we've done uh, what we can to limit China's access to technology and to hard technologies, such as semiconductors in certain areas. So they want to move more into a greater area of self-sufficiency. Now, if we'd been in an era where we didn't have these tensions, I think it would be reasonable to say that China wouldn't feel that threat, uh, economic threat from the outside world the sort of things we saw in the trade war and the like, and probably wouldn't be taking these steps to sort of pull in to be able to be more self-sufficient. At the same time, it still wants to keep its its uh, relationships with the rest of the world. It's not, it's not becoming completely separated or, de or decoupled, as the popular phrase is, but it's definitely reacting to what it perceives as threats from the outside world. And so, in a sense, these tensions have, are creating vast changes in the Chinese economy to deal with that tension. Just following on from that, Malcolm, do you see China's weaker points, insecurities driving still a lot of this geopolitical strategy. And you could argue, and please do with me if you think I'm wrong, that maybe China has not quite an Achilles heel, but weaknesses where it has big trade deficits. So energy imports energy, food is a net importer. Maybe, tell me if you think it's wrong, that is demographics, you know, falling fertility rate, aging population, those things could be construed to be certainly weaknesses or maybe insecurities, and are they driving geopolitical strategy? And then the end game of that question is, once those things have been resolved, and maybe you could throw in some gaps in intellectual property, so certainly semiconductors, for example, once those things have been resolved, does China then retreat? Once China has resolved what it sees as its weaknesses, it doesn't need to buy as much energy from the rest of the world or as much food, does it then become self-sufficient and then have less interest in the rest of the world? Is that its end game? Is that what it wants? I, again, the end game, I, it, that's more than, that's farther out than I could go. But I think there's a very, there's a, I have a, my own method of analysis. And one of these is to look at China's vulnerabilities. And this is, and I do this because this is what Xi, Xi Jinping had ordered to be done. And that is he wanted to see where the choke points were throughout the Chinese economy, where the outside world could harm China and where the things that are happening in China could cause a, a collapse or a downturn. So I think what you're seeing is that Xi Jinping is very concerned about the weaknesses. He's taking steps to address them. And let's take an internal example. We saw the, with this question of falling population, one of the issues is that uh, it costs a lot of money to raise a kid in China. And one of those reasons is because of online, because it's so competitive nature to get into a good university. There is not such great quality online 
tutoring that everybody feels, well, if I don't do it, maybe my kid's at a disadvantage. It doesn't really, it's not very good. And so he just wiped out that industry. Now, that makes it cheaper to have a kid. So it was more likely that uh, people will be interested in having children. Same thing with real estate prices. So you look at these things from these lenses, you see that he's looking at vulnerabilities and then taking policy actions internally to do that. If you look externally, as I said, if you take things like semiconductors, China for years has been trying to build its own semiconductor industry. We know we see, for example, we see Europe now beginning to make its move to do that. But China is doing it because it's all a vulnerability. And that is that it was dependent on its economic growth and its technological development on the outside world for that technology and for those that hardware. And so it's taking steps to deal with these. Now, what happens when all that's done? I don't think it, I don't think China necessarily retreats from the world, but I think it's I think the more vulnerabilities that it it, it solves the more robust the political actions will be. And I think that's a little bit of a, I think it's sort of maybe sort of the opposite of what you're saying is that I could see a more assertive China that has, that feels it has vulnerabilities shored up. Just to give a quick example, people talk about China wanting to um, invade Taiwan to get the uh, TSMC semiconductor fabs, which I believe in any war would be destroyed anyway. But the point of that is China doesn't want to do that because it it would lose its access to semiconductors, such as it has. So all these things are complicated. But I think the more Xi Jinping takes care of the vulnerabilities, the more you will see a more assertive China. As I was asking my question, I could see you shaking your head, Mike, which um, I'm going to view as a good thing. So I tell me why you were disagreeing with, with what was implied in my question, which is what well, Malcolm has really rebutted there, which is as China resolves these things, it actually, he thinks, becomes more assertive rather, rather than more insular. Is that what you were kind of shaking your head? No, about? I know. I, don't, I wasn't disagreeing with that specifically, Hugh, what I was thinking to myself, look at everybody is starting to think about resilience, vulnerability, and self-sufficiency. It's not not just China. For example, drugs in the context of the pandemic. I don't want to single out China in this respect, you know, and we probably have to worry about rare earths, many of which are are mined in China. But I do think that trend is, is legitimate. But I no the the reason I, I was shaking my head is I I think in discussing the geopolitical context we're in danger of losing sight of the point that Vivian made which is I I think for I mean China is not a person it's one point four billion people and a a pretty powerful leader and governance structure and I think you know that thinking about what China is going to be like in the future really requires one to understand what the Chinese people want. And I think they want this process of uh, modernization, growth to develop. I shook my head specifically, you know, when Malcolm was talking, not because I like picking fights with Malcolm, I usually lose. But China has a major inequality problem. Their Gini coefficient is somewhere in the mid to high 40s. And so I think, you know, one of the things that economists think about and talk about as well as policymakers is inclusive growth pattern. So they have, they've had stunningly mm-hmm. spectacular growth, but a, you know, it's a pretty serious problem of inequality that's not all that dissimilar 
to the one that we have in the United States. So I think, you know, a lot of the actions that you're seeing taken are directed not at some kind of external agenda, but at a, an important domestic agenda that's kind of front and center for the, the Chinese people. You know, if they lose control of important aspects of the growth patterns, and I'm going to turn this over to Vivian in a minute, on the inequality front, on the inclusiveness front, you know, on the corruption front, that then they risk, they know they risk losing the support that the Communist Party needs to govern effectively. Vivian, I guess, would you agree with that final sentiment from Mike there? And also, would you agree that even though China is probably exerting more, the government is exerting more control of the economy, there's still enough space to be innovative to solve some of these, whatever we call them, weaknesses, insecurities, things that China wants but yeah. doesn't still have and therefore needs the rest of the world for. Yeah, first of all, I do agree with Mike and also I agree with Malcolm. I, I think both very good experts in the very complex issues in China. But I want to step back a little bit. What about U.S.? What U.S. tried to accomplish in this relationship with China? I think China is very clear about what they want to accomplish, right? They want to either restore the uh, respect or understanding from the West or grow their domestic economy and bring up people to the prosperity and then continue to reform. But what does U.S. try to accomplish during this um, new form of the relationship between these two countries? I'm not quite so sure, right? I mean, we know U.S.-China new relationship is a strategic competitors now. So if U.S. endgame of doing this is try to make sure China is not no longer a competitive threat or competitors. And then the question is, first of all, is this thought is correct from economic global economic perspective? Secondly, how can U.S. achieve that goal? Whether all the things U.S. done in the last three plus years, achieving that goal or even go the other way. Like as Malcolm mentioned earlier, China realized oh, now they need to be more self-independent on semiconductor. Before U.S. pushing on that, China was okay, rely on rest of the world, imported 40 plus percent of the world's uh, semiconductor kind of thing. So this is something I find it quite interesting. I don't think U.S. is very clear, both from the political side, economic side, or private sector side, or even general public side, know what exactly U.S. would like to accomplish. And this is not the same as during the, the real Cold War time in the 60s, 50s, and 70s. So that's my first kind of point. Second point, you can see that there are asymmetrical attitudes between China and U.S. versus this conflict or tension, and which is a very true with, given this um, the trap thing you mentioned before. So basically, U.S. being the one probably more proactively putting China in this competitive status, whether geopolitically, economically, system-wise, ideologically. And China tend to react and respond to that. But China understands as a rising power, which is still not as big as US, and their governing system and their ideological system can never be replicated in the rest of the world. I think Malcolm mentioned that too, um, Mike. It cannot be export that governing system. So, so they want to make sure they are fine, but now they see this continuous tension threat coming through and they have to respond. If I use a, not a good analogy in schools, you've had big kid and small kid, and the small kid knows they shouldn't pick on the fight, right? Because they have everything else, everything to lose. And I think that has been what I see the essence of Chinese attitude. But they cannot see they're doing nothing. So they have to use rhetoric and response to react to all those. But in the same time, they pursue their own end game and goal, whether it's 
actually there are four words when China started the opening and reform in 1978. Basically, it's reform opening, 改革开放, means internally they need to continue to reform. Reform means that previously China economic system was this communism and socialism and doesn't fit. So they need to reform means to grow this capitalistic or market-driven economy. And then externally, they need to continue to open, open up. And this is exactly what I've seen in recent times, the dual circulation that Malcolm also mentioned before. Externally, even though things become very complicated, they continue to open up the relationship to more multilateral kind of relationship, whether it's economically speaking, whether it's geopolitically speaking, not just with the US, right? So I think this is something we probably need to be more um, cognizant about that two different countries are looking at the things a little bit differently. And then the question is, would China deviate from what they are doing under this uh, complex backdrop? My, my point is probably not. Thanks. So I've got a couple more questions around China external geopolitics, and I want to do a little bit on China. Can, can uh, I take just a second and, and just respond to Vivian? Because I have a little bit of a different point of view. Vivian, I don't know, of course, I'm not saying this is right, but if you remember, we've been, we were in, in, in a period of engagement with China, supporting China's entry into WTO, opening trade, having most favored nation uh, status for our trade, essentially trying to support China's growth. And then something happened. Now, why would the U.S. within a, within a few years not want to support China anymore and suddenly we're in this conflict? Did the U.S. policy of 40-odd years just change? Did we just say, oh, my God, we've, we've just been wrong, China? Or were, did the Xi Jinping, under Xi Jinping, did he take actions that were threatening to the U.S., rightly or wrongly? Threatening, and I'll give it just a couple of examples. Well, first, the one, the long-standing ones we know about are questions of intellectual property theft and not complying with WTO requirements. But let's just take some under Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping claimed, essentially claimed that China, I think very spurious, and the and the International Court of Justice said the same thing. Claims that it essentially has the entire South China Sea as its backyard and started to build islands and militarize that, that area, certainly upsetting its neighbors and, and making Taiwan, Japan, Korea, and, and our allies certainly th feel threatened. And our feeling that this was not the, in contradiction to what Xi Jinping promised uh, President Obama. If we go to a second point, and this is where I think there was nothing wrong with this, this is a PR sort of problem, but China says, Made in China 2025, we're going to take over the world in the advanced technologies. And everybody says, huh? I thought we were all working together on this. Now you're going to just try to beat the pants off us? So and they, and they, we got scared and, and did these things. So I think a lot of this is it, some of these aggressive actions by Xi Jinping during that administration turned the attitude, rightly or wrongly. And so I, I, because don't forget all those years of engagement and support that we gave to China. So something changed. I don't see it so much on the U.S. side. So far as the U.S. goal, I think the U.S. goal was pretty clearly containment or weakening of China. That's a great point. I just thought about why actually suddenly two countries turn into this uh, kind of relationship. I do feel economic changes is a big one, GDP. So yeah. she actually took over in 2012 and nothing happened yet. Actually, China did an anti-corruption measure. Yeah. At that time, China has 8.5 trillion GDP. 
dollars, yep. US more than double. Now fast forward 2020, China is 14.5 trillion, US now is 21 trillion. So the gap has narrowed tremendously even in the last five plus six years. And then in the same time, that the growth of China continue. And as you mentioned correctly, that China, uh, she at the beginning put out this made in 2025. So I wonder, is this a really a more rhetoric kind of a misunderstanding? That's what I think. Or, from that, yeah. yeah, because think about we, we talk about China has this end game very clear. They want to grow this country. They want to have technology advancement. They want this 1.4 billion people continue to feel prosperity and, and peace. So for them to have made in 2025, I think it's a natural evolution of that goal because China used to be the factory of, China, of the world, right? Walmart, Target, they all do that with in China and the environmental impact becomes so big and labor intensive business model doesn't work for China anymore because they continue to have the advance to higher value yeah. add. So for them to have 2025 made in China, it's not really uncommon to think about that, right? But if you just think about that, it's a declare of an increased competition. And that, that could be another discussion back to what US should think about this. So if China to be smart, maybe they should just be quiet, keep doing what they're doing without well, putting. So they, <laughs> that was Deng, that was Deng Xiaoping's advice. Yeah. You know? but, but he at did, the end of the day, it's the same. Yeah. Right. But he did say for now, hide your strength. But and so I think they're pretty strong now, and Xi Jinping is you know making some moves, and he's he's made made folks nervous. Yeah, so so that's I think it's an interesting observation. I think back to what I was saying earlier, what's the end game from the U.S. and how U.S. can achieve the end game, and then how we can understand or interpret what China is doing in every kind of a areas. I think the American end game is is either unclear or incoherent. In the following sense, I mean, there, nobody that I know reasonably argues that China can be um, held back in terms of, you know, economic and social progress, but also technology. I mean, it just doesn't work that way, right? You know, nobody contained nuclear weapons. All the major powers got them within three or four years, you know, and this other stuff's leakier than that. And to, just to advance a point both of you made, China got bigger. So the relationship was bound to change. But if you look out into the future, unless there's some catastrophic event in their development, they're going to be bigger than everybody else for a significant period of time. So it's very difficult for me, at least, to understand what the American position is on this, unless there's a bunch of people making policy, mostly on the national security front, who really think you can contain or hold China down. But that doesn't seem, I wouldn't bet my kids' yeah. savings on that part. Yeah. One more point, I'll hand it back to Hugo. I agree with you, Mike and Malcolm too. I do think at the end, US and China, as we observed, it should be a win-win situation kind of relationship, but not a zero-sum game kind of relationship. Right. And that's yeah. to Malcolm's point earlier, when US supported China when going into WTO and all that, China, U.S. also benefit from that, right? You look Absolutely. at U.S. inflation being no inflation for a long period of time because you, yeah. you can import such a cheaply made but it's equally good quality of uh, products from China. So U.S. consumers benefit from this. So to some extent, it's a win-win situation. But now if yeah. you pursue this kind of a new era of the relationship without clear understanding what you want to achieve and think about it's a zero-sum game, I think it's not good for either country. It's not good for the global order or economic. Gross. 
Well, I wish you and Mike were on the National Security Council because I think that all the signals I get, I agree with Mike, is pretty muddled, but it is not that they're they're searching for ways to cooperate and have a win-win situation. Agreed. We're going the opposite direction. Yeah. I just want to pivot domestically and ask, I suppose, a little bit of a provocative question just to see what you think, which is common prosperity. Is that a genuine desire to improve outcomes for a majority of society, or is that actually just a way of retaining power? And so to put it more provocatively, we used to talk about talk about socialism with Chinese characteristics, and we're now talking about communism with digital characteristics. So is what's happening around common prosperity more about a strengthening of power, or is it actually a very healthy, hygienic, clean cleanup of an economy that had maybe overextended or grown too uneven or grown too... I guess, to in too black and narrow fashion. So I'll throw that to you. You're the economist here, Mike. I'll throw it to you. Well, I'll start. Um, and I think everybody will have a view on this. You know, in statistics, there's a problem called collinearity when, you know, when two variables are very highly correlated. And so you can't tell which one is having the causal effect. The reason I mention that is that I believe that, you know, this is from personal relationships with, you know, policymakers of the type that both Vivian and Malcolm also have, that there's a genuine commitment to inclusive growth. And on the other hand, you could argue that a, a major failure on that front would threaten the authority of the Communist Party and ultimately stability in that system. And that's the collinearity problem. So the skeptic, the cynic about their motivation can always argue that it's only really about... Uh, it's just another dimension of sort of staying in power. And so, I mean, l- let me say one other thing, Hugh, and then I'll, then I'll stop. I do think there's genuine disagreement about the path forward and reform among really smart, talented people who are leading this in China, both in the previous generation and now. And they're going to have to find their way through it. But I think on the current path, they are running some risk of inserting the state sufficiently deeply into the economy as to partially suffocate its innovativeness and dynamism. Now, they're famous in China for sort of not getting things absolutely right, because you can't. It's too complicated a process and then making mid-course corrections. So the hope is if they cross that line and start to, to experience, you know, diminished dynamism that ultimately drives the prosperity, that they'll sort of make a, a mid-course correction. But right now, I think there's some risk that the ideological left, the, you know, the hardliners, will have sufficient influence that they'll stay on the course of, uh, you know, of inserting the state too far into the economy. With And I'm saying this because you asked about control. And I, I think there is a desire on the part of a subset of the, quote, political spectrum in China to have a much higher degree of control and most of us think is consistent with the innovation. Vivian, how do you think about that control, yeah. ideology, innovation, pragmatism? I agree with Mike that directionally speaking, we have seen this increased, the left side of the ideological con- control, especially on the macro level of the economy, right? And that's what we've been seeing a lot in recent times. And in China, actually, for government to control any industry isn't really a new news. But previously, it's more, more from the macro side of consideration or some reform side of consideration. This, I think, is first time maybe start to looking at this, um, we don't know, social agenda or political agenda side of. So I do think incrementally that the risks have 
horizon. And the question is also to Mike's point, how far they will go on this. I like to believe that because their key goal is still try to make sure the prosperity of this 1.4 billion people. And we just don't want them to do too far along the other side and then to do the mid-course correction. And then the damage will be so big that it's maybe difficult for them to even go back on track. So I still think that probability of happening is still low, uh, given that Mike also pointed out there are different ideological uh, debates within China among those leadership about what's the best way forward. So I think it's not a one voice, as I understand. And then I think China does put this growth target and that GDP growth at a very high level of a priority, given that it does pertain with employment, with a, the social stability, if you will. So if and when this impact on the political side start to really uh, take a toll on the growth side of the target goal, it will show immediately. It's already shown recently, this broader base slowdown. So it'd be interesting to see in the next couple of quarters how the recent phenomenon we saw on the political side, whether it will stabilize a little bit or continue. But definitely, I think it's a very important thing to watch going forward. So what I need to do now, what I want to do now is thank all three of you for a, well, I hope everyone agrees it's been a really rich and thorough conversation about a lot of important things which are in flux. Thank you, Hugh. Thank Thank you. Mm, nice to see you. Thanks. Fun to be part of it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim@williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.